Hi, I'm Erica Pandy, and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. It's Monday, November 1st, and we're focused on COP26. Yesterday kicked off COP26, the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference. More than 100 world leaders are meeting in Glasgow, and this year's gathering is more crucial than ever. Scientists are warning that time is running out to avoid more devastating climate change impacts over the coming decades. Is this the last chance to make a dent in emissions? In a moment, Axios' climate and energy reporter Andrew Friedman on what COP26 could actually mean for the climate. And we're joined now by Andrew Friedman, Axios' climate and energy reporter, who has been reporting on the UN Climate Change Conference. Hey, Andrew. Hey there. So, Andrew, get me up to speed here. What is the history behind COP26? It's the 26th meeting of the Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. So that's an agreement that every country signed on to in 1992. And since then, we've been doing these annual summits to, like, ratchet up global action as the science has become clearer. Has it been the same attendees at every conference? It's delegates who specialize in environmental negotiations, but no, every single COP is unique. Every COP is unique because some of them, like this one, draw more than 100 world leaders. Some of them only environment ministers. Some of them no political level leaders at all, just negotiators. So it depends what's on the table. And has it been the same countries represented since the beginning or, or has that changed? That only changed briefly for periods of time. Pretty much every country in the world has sent a delegation every time. But the United States, after the after we led the negotiation of the Paris Agreement, we were one of the major forces behind it in 2015. President Trump did uh, move to withdraw from it, which was the only country to do so. Um, there was a brief period of time in which we might not have returned to a COP. But because President Biden moved to rejoin so quickly after taking office, here we are. And who are some of the big names expected to attend this year's COP? So everybody's looking to two countries, really, two to three countries. Prime Minister Modi of India is coming. That was a question mark for a little while, but he is coming. India is the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. And they're also a country that burns a lot of coal but simultaneously is working to scale up solar energy and other renewables by a tremendous amount. The big player, really, China, they are by far the world's largest emitter. However, Chinese President Xi has not traveled outside of the country since the start of the pandemic. He's not expected, but a senior government official is. And a Chinese delegation, that'll be a large delegation, will be there, including John Kerry's counterpart, who actually was his counterpart in the Paris negotiations. And that was designated on purpose by the Chinese government when John Kerry was named. So the two of them have a history. And zooming out and asking you in, in you know, our blunt Axios way, why does this meeting matter? This meeting matters because there's two targets on the Paris Agreement. So basically, the world got together in 2015, came up with this agreement that said, we want to keep global warming to well below 2 degrees C 
by the end of the century compared to pre-industrial levels. So that's about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. We're at 1.1 degrees C of global warming now. The more ambitious target that uh, small island countries and other very vulnerable nations advocated for was 1.5 C. So that's the aspirational target. And the slogan going into COP26 by many diplomats is keep 1.5 alive. And right now, the latest information shows us based on if every country's pledge to the UN was met to a T, we would be headed for 2.7 degrees C of warming by 2100. So that's if everything is met. So obviously that exceeds both of the Paris goals. It is believed that the 1.5 degree goal is slipping out of reach. And so a big goal for COP26 is to get both the private sector and uh, public sector leaders really offering ambitious proposals to put both money behind this as well as more ambition and more ambitious targets for reducing emissions in the near term. And there are some scientists who will just tell you we're going to overshoot 1.5 degrees for a period of time and then maybe come back down to it. But really, this isn't just an abstract number. It sounds like it, it and it sounds small. But we're at 1.1C, and we're already seeing the western United States erupt in massive wildfires in the summer. We're seeing much more intense heat waves. We're seeing all of these disasters and the more that we find out about climate change, it makes scientists even more worried about going beyond thresholds that they thought were safe before. So 1.5 is really viewed as kind of a guardrail against when, if we pass it, then maybe we start to lose entire ecosystems from tropical rainforests to coral reefs. It's all of these countries trying to work together Every country has to agree to every point in order to move to the next point. So it's like 192 countries or however many there actually are. So it is not easy, you know, watching these negotiations. You mentioned these countries and you also mentioned the private sector. Is keeping climate change to 1.5 or even 2 degrees Celsius possible without the private sector? Uh, no. I think the private sector funding, like mobilizing the private sector, is absolutely essential here. I think you'll hear John Kerry say this over and over again, that the private sector essentially is moving faster than governments are. There's billions and billions and billions of dollars being pledged, and I think there's going to be many more commitments that you'll hear about in the next couple of weeks. I'm getting, you know, three to five press releases about these commitments into my inbox every five minutes. So there's going to be a lot of alliances formed, a lot of companies staking out positions, because companies are both uh, sustaining losses because of climate disasters. They want to get on the right side of history, but they also see this as a huge money-making thing to change the way that they do business. Even the maritime industry, which has been a real holdout, they're not part of the Paris Agreement, bulk container ships are not exactly zero emissions. They may be making commitments here voluntarily to, to go faster. Going back to government just for a sec, the U.S. has gone from Trump to Biden, two presidents whose views on climate change are drastically different, as you noted yourself. How does that affect the U.S.'s place in a meeting like this? 
The U.S. place in a meeting like this is going to be unique this time. Nobody is taking for granted the notion that America is a world leader on climate change or multilateralism in general. So even EU nations are looking skeptically at the Biden administration to some extent. They know the Biden administration's heart is in the right place. That's how it's been described to me by diplomats. You know, they know that they mean well and that they want to do certain things. However, they're afraid of the domestic political climate in the United States and that Democrats are going to be ushered out of Congress in a year. They are worried that Trump is going to come back or a Trump-like figure is going to come back and walk away from whatever agreements we make now. And they are just worried about how much Biden can deliver. Like, if he doesn't land in Glasgow with any congressional things to show for his big agenda, then he's kind of a little bit more of an empty suit. And to some extent, it really hinders his ability to to say to China, hey, you guys got to step up too. A lot is at stake for the United States at this meeting and at subsequent meetings, I mean, and previous meetings, like the G20 precedes this, you know, NATO summits take on like a bigger meaning here. I would argue that the very foundation of multilateralism is at stake at a meeting like this. And you could see climate action moving more into the private sector and moving more into kind of lower stakes ad hoc forums in coming years rather than these big meetings with every country negotiating every word. India is the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Who's one and who's two? So China's one, the United States is two. And the point that China will make about the United States, any chance it gets, is that the United States is the number one historical emitter, is the number one cumulative emitter. If you think of a carbon budget... So to reach 1.5 degrees, we can only emit a certain amount, and then we're guaranteed to reach it. The EU and the United States have spent most of that budget. And China and these other countries are saying, wait a minute, for us to develop, for us to raise our standards of living, we need a fair share here. And you guys created the problem. So what are you going to do for us? And to be honest, just as a person, you know, yeah, these are tactical negotiating positions, but this is all kind of arguments that you might have at a dinner table at the same time, and also game theory. And it's really fascinating, but it is really interesting to see some of the positions that the countries are staking out. And I will say China came out with their newest emissions reduction commitment on Thursday, How do those differ from the previous ones? It differed from the 2015 commitment. It's more stringent. However, they did not do anything beyond what she had already committed to. So what countries were looking for was a specific date when emissions would peak in China. And all they're saying is sometime before 2030. And they were thinking, hey, they might say 2026, because that's kind of where their emissions curve is going. But instead, they said before 2030, and they're aiming for neutrality in 2060. It really was a missed opportunity to be more ambitious. And it may be a calculation that they're waiting to see what happens with 
Biden's congressional package and to see what happens between Kerry and their delegation. How are climate activists responding to COP26? Climate activists, there will be many protests on the streets. I think that climate activists, to some extent, see this as a last chance, as like, uh, you guys are blowing this opportunity and uh, not living up to your promises. I think the movement Fridays for Future really is getting a little bit more sophisticated and kind of gets that the road to emissions reductions doesn't necessarily run through COPs. That it's also about convincing country after country and filing court cases after court cases and, you know, engaging at different levels of government and civil society. So I don't know. I don't know exactly how the activist storyline is going to play out at this one. If you hear this is our last chance, this summit is our last chance, and there's therefore a lot of despair if it's failing. It's not our last chance. It's maybe our last chance to reduce emissions in a sustainable way, like economically, to meet a target. But we could still meet a target and just cost more to get there. And there's another summit next year. So, like, the argument that I hear a lot are the stakes get raised much higher and higher before these things get started. And then what happens is in the couple of weeks before the negotiations, the expectations start getting lowered based on where countries think things are going. And I talked to the president of the negotiations, who's a UK official, and he basically blatantly said this is going to be much more difficult than Paris. And he sounded a little bit more pessimistic than heads of UN negotiations typically do. They're typically very stoic and determined, and he is quite determined. There's the view that there's geopolitical forces that are really making this one more turbulent. Axios climate and energy reporter Andrew Friedman. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. Here's another trend we're watching today. Millions of baby boomers retired early during the pandemic. According to Miguel Ferreira Castro, a senior economist at the St. Louis Fed, the pandemic pushed more than 3 million boomers into premature retirement. Some dealt with layoffs, others stayed out of work because of the COVID risk, and some couldn't find jobs after they'd been out of work for a while, which is always harder for people in their 50s and 60s. The result? More boomers calling it quits on their full-time careers. And of course, this early retirement trend is making the U.S.'s massive labor shortage even worse. And that's it for today. I'm Erica Pandy. Thanks for listening, and we're back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.